We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Uh, all right, let's start with this. Uh, fallout from uh, the Prime Minister's allegations against political interference and the death of a Sikh separatist leader in British Columbia. Uh, obviously, this to do with India. Um, uh, and, of course, the fallout between the two Prime Ministers, ours and theirs. Does Justin Trudeau have a plan for political interference? Uh, as they were dragging their feet on a public inquiry into the Chinese Communist Party. I think this has gone to a whole new level uh, now that someone is killed on Canadian soil. Uh, Indian uh, India has issued a travel advisory for Canada for its citizens, <laughs> which seems very bizarre. What about the citizens or those from India that are already living here? The thousands and thousands of them. Should they be careful too? Should they return home? Uh, what, 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 you know, it just seems very, very bizarre. Uh, and we'll see where this all pans out, uh, in, in the end and, and what direction we end, uh, end up going with. And then, as you may notice, there's, uh, protests going on across the country. Uh, in regard to the LGBT community and then the anti-LGBTQ community. And I don't know. Um, you know, uh, I'm a 60-year-old guy. I grew up here in this country. I have watched women obtain the rights to uh, pro-choice and their abortion and whatever it is that you want to do. Um, uh, look at the, the how far we've come with divorce settlements and, and women's rights and such. Um, also looking in the same direction with the LGBT community. I think Canada's, um, I don't think we're filled with hate. I think everybody, you know, minds their own business and does their own thing. And we don't give a damn what goes on in your bedroom. Didn't Justin's father say that? And yet now we're, we're fighting about these things again. And I'm not sure why, because, uh, it seems that this is the fringe on the left and the fringe on the right. Extreme left, extreme right, and they're trying to drag everybody else into their mess. And just like a freedom convoy, there's a bazillion different issues here. Let's weigh in on one. The board and how they're trying to decide whether they should tell the parents certain things, whether it's pronouns, what have you. At what point do does it not become the parents' business anymore, especially if you're under 16 years of age? Sorry, I'm a parent. The board is not the parent. And all we have to do is look at the recent examples of school boards in Ontario and the complete incompetency of them. Not all, but certainly some. So, um, no, you don't get to decide what I know because you work for me. So uh, we know that kids have rights, and if there is assaults or something going on, there are rules and regulations in place. But... My, I, I deserve to know what direction my kid's life's going in. So that's one, uh, I, I think, of the arguments, but it's close to the center. And then it goes from there to, well, we don't want them teaching this. We don't want them teaching that. And all of a sudden there's hate and there's ding, 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 ding. Who hates who? Who's hating anybody here? Who is attacking who? 
what, what, you know, it, it just amazes me to no end how the extremes have taken over. And this isn't about LGBTQ rights or, or any of that, because they have the rights of every other Canadian. And I mean, my goodness, we're at the forefront of all of that, are we not? Were we not the first to, uh, or one of the first to introduce gay marriages? Like, why are we arguing about this crap? The same thing that we're arguing about abortions that aren't about to be taken away. So, again, we have the extremes, both on the extreme left and the extreme right, once again, having a conversation and sucking in everybody else in the middle by maybe pulling a common thread like, well, you know what, at the end of the day, no, I'd like to know what my kids' pronouns are. Sorry, you're not the parent, I am. You do not have a higher power than a parent. Sorry. And all we have to do is look at what's happened in Halton over the last little while, what's happened in Peel, what's happened in York Region. I mean, there's all sorts of dysfunction within school boards across this province. Sorry, they don't get to keep crap from the parents. And then from there, it goes off to the extremes. Off to the extremes. And it's either you're on this side or you're on that side. Everybody, sit down and shut the hell up. And let's deal with these situations on an individual basis. There aren't groups of people hating other groups of people. It's extremism gone nuts. Extremism gone nuts. Everyone has rights. All of those rights are protected. So you want to come together, you want to have discussions, great. But I really don't know why everybody's screaming at each other? Because they're on the extremes. And that's not where anything is solved. So when you want to come to the center and you want to talk about grocery prices, housing, affordability, health care, jobs, the economy, I'm all in. But I'm not, cons- I'm not sure why all of our attention seems to be debating the LGBT community, the trees in the green belt. When we have all this other stuff, it blows my mind. Have you heard enough of the extremes on the left and the right? I know I have. Huh? Do you recognize it? Do you recognize the theme song? Come on! Ten seconds. Eight, seven, six, five, four, three. Chips, man. Chips. Remember the chips? California Highway Patrol on the motorbikes. I know you idolize them as kids. Well, this is your weekend in the hammer. Hamilton Comic Con swings into action this weekend, and to talk more about it all, Chris Dabrowski is with us. Hamilton Comic Con and here now. Chris, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm very well, Scott. Thanks for having me on this afternoon. So uh, let's get the right to the uh, cut to the chase right here. What is uh, who are the headliners? Who are the people that uh, that the crowd is going to come to see this weekend at Hamilton Comic Con? Depending on what you're into, I, I you just played the theme song of Chips, and, and that brought, brought me back to, to some memories of watching that great show back in the uh, 80s and 90s. Um, Eric Estrada, Larry Wilcox, if you're a fan of wrestling, we have a, a huge lineup, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, 
Demolition, Powers of Pain, Tony Atlas. If you're a horror fan, we have Scream Queen, Danielle Harris. If you're a fan of Star Wars or Obi-Wan Kenobi, we have Demetrius Burchevsky, who played Darth Vader in the, the most recent series, Obi-Wan. So literally something for everyone. We spend many different generations in terms of uh, when we bring in guests and who we cater to. So there's something for all ages. How do you decide who gets to come in? How do you, how do you pick those? We've been in the, the show business for, for over 10 years. We run Comic-Cons in Niagara Falls, Buffalo. Yeah. And, of course, here in Hamilton, we're celebrating 10 years. So over the years, it's gotten a little bit easier. It's still really hard. We, we spend most of our time um, outreaching to, to Hollywood agents to try to, to try to fill our celebrity guest list. And, and sometimes it takes time. Back in the day, I remember uh, when we were trying to book Adam West, who, who many might remember him from the original yeah. 1966 Batman. It took probably seven years until it fit within his Family Guy schedule, um, whether it fit in his Comic-Con schedule. These, these actors are, are still working actors, most of them. Um, so we, we have a long list of our wish list and who we want to bring in. And sometimes it's just a, a matter of waiting and, and waiting until the time's right. So uh, we listen to our fans. We do a lot of market research. We know what Comic-Cons are all about and, and what people want to see and what they want to do and which autographs they like to collect. So it's, it's a mix of everything. And is it different in every area that you go? I mean, it might be different in the east, west, north, south. Who, you know, would be a draw? It is. And, and we just wrapped up Niagara Falls Comic Con a few months ago, and we had the Trailer Park Boys in. The Trailer Park Boys, huge mm. draw. Long lines wrapped around the building. Yeah. <laughs> but if you go into the United States, you might go into Ohio or Pennsylvania or New York, and they're not overly familiar with, with the Trailer Park Boys. Another guest I can think of, Brett Hitman Hart. Huge Canadian right. national hero in our country, in the United States, still popular, but maybe not as popular. Hamilton, it's a, a good steel town, um, blue-collar working town. And I think uh, two gentlemen like Eric Estrada and Larry Wilcox and, and the show Chips will resonate with a lot of people. So depending on the, the market that we're in, we like to uh, kind of choose our celebrities wisely. And so what's the attraction for fans? Why do they come out? You talked about autographs. Is it getting the selfie? Is it getting the autograph? What, 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 what draws them to come to these events? It's all of it. When you walk into Comic-Con, if you've never been to a Comic-Con before in your life, you, you have to check it out at least once. Um, whether it's costumes, superheroes, if you're into um, a lot of the exhibitors and their offerings like Funkos and toys and collectibles. There's displays. Bill Diamond brings in his Hollywood movie display. If you can remember shows like Fraggle Rock and the Muppets, Bill was responsible for creating a lot of the puppets that you saw in those shows. So there's literally something for everyone at Comic-Con. There's the Mystery Machine TV car. If you're not into that, there's celebrities. If you're not into that, there's comic books. And if you're not into that, just the various costumes and that you see walking around Comic-Con um, is definitely a visual sight to see. So it's, it's, it's an experience. It's not just about autographs. It's not just about celebrities. I say it's celebrating geek, and, and there is a geek in all of us somewhere. <laughs> so does a lot of this stuff travel from show to show, or is it different in every city? Um, how does that work? Uh, it, it depends. In terms of the attractions, we try to bring something new every year. Here in Hamilton in the past, we've had the Batcopter. We've had the yeah. car from Knight Rider. We've had the DeLorean from Back to the Future. So a lot, of, a lot of attractions that you do see might be replicated in other communities and other cities. We try to keep things fresh and new each year that we come back to Hamilton Comic Con. And there's a, an abundance of pop culture when you think of all the movies and, and TV shows that 
we've all grown up watching since, you know, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. Yeah. Um, there, there's so much pop culture and nostalgia that we can celebrate at Comic-Con. All right, Chris, give us the whens, where's, the logistics of everything. Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum, tickets available online or at the door. We run both days this weekend, Saturday and Sunday, HamiltonComicCon.com. If you've been, you know what you're in for. If you've never been, come and check out what you've been missing. So if you're coming to see uh, a couple of the celebrities, uh, do they come and speak? Do they sit down, do autograph sessions? How does that work? So they sit in celebrity row a lot of the time. A lot of their time at Comic-Con spent in celebrity row, meeting and greeting with fans, signing autographs, taking selfies. And then Q&A panels are offered at the event as well for free. A lot of people are a little bit more shy. Um, they're not comfortable walking up to a celebrity and necessarily asking a, a boatload of questions. So the Q&A panel offers a, a very comfortable environment where the celebrity can talk about their career where they've been, where they're going, what they're working on, and people in a, a very community-oriented environment can ask questions publicly. So it's, uh, it's very interactive, and uh, we look forward to seeing everybody this weekend. Hamilton Comic Con in action this weekend at the Warplane Heritage Museum. Uh, Museum. Chris Dabrowski with us, Hamilton's Comic Con, and it goes on uh, Saturday and Sunday. Chris, good luck this year. Thanks for the time. Thank you. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert, and talk about the crap of the day and see what direction we end up going in. Alyssa Freeman with us now. Alyssa, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. What an intro, Scott. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, uh, I've talked about that, and I'm completely... I know which way you're going, but that's no. Okay. You, you know what? I, I, I'm always, uh, you know, blindsiding you, and I apologize for that, but I love the conversations that we have. Um uh, are we ever going to uh, come back to the center, do you think? It just seems in every issue, in every debate, uh, it's either you're way over there or you're way over there. And, you know, none of them want to talk to each other and they're demonstrating and shouting and yelling. And in the middle is somewhere a solution. And, I, I, you know, I don't want to weigh too much onto the, uh, you know, the demonstrations that are going on today in the LGBT community. But it seems it's it, it, this is a fringe discussion between the extreme left and the extreme right. And and everybody else gets kind of gets caught in the middle in a country where we're very progressive, um, uh, you know, LGBTQ rights and, and, and marriage and such. Like, I mean, we've been dealing with this stuff for years. It's behind us. And it, it just seems odd that, you know, when the extremes get a voice and thank goodness they have, um, I guess, with social media and such that has given them given everybody a, a voice it just seems that now it's 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 become very divisive and 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 if you're not on the right team you you can have an opinion and if you do you get called called out on it what are your thoughts am i just babbling aimlessly here no and and i think what happens is is that when you do get these you do bring up a very valid point scott and the point is is that you know you get these very extreme screamers on each side let's just call it what it is and they don't necessarily represent the views of the majority but there seems to be some prevailing theory that if i'm loud people will start listening to me and i will i can help change policy which isn't n not always necessary but 
you know, I, I, I have Where to did say- that, let's start with that. Let's start with that. Where did that come from, Alyssa? Because I remember I just, somebody just sent me a tweet from former You're not MP. You're going to like my answer with this, Scott. I'll tell you where it came from. Catherine McKenna said, if you say it loud enough and repeat it enough over and over again, people will believe it. Um, I guess Donald well, Trump. that is, is correct. That-, that is correct. And all you have to do is ask Donald Trump and, and yeah. he'll tell you that it worked. Yeah. yeah it's not yeah. that, you know, you could fact check him six ways to Sunday and he doesn't care. I mean, no. Daniel Dale, a Canadian down in the States, a renowned reporter. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, he's the one who fact checks Trump all the time. Not sure if he's still doing it as much, but he was. And he, Trump, you know, would just spew falsehoods all day yeah. long, 24 yeah. 7. Yeah. But there are people who are going to do their homework and there are people who are not. And the majority will not. And if you keep yelling it and screaming it like the election was a fraud, I really won the election, stop the steal. Yeah. You know, simple outburst of five words or less, Scott, can have a huge eff- and profound effect on people. So, you know, you have Trump who comes into power, I guess, what was it, 2016? And it get kind of gave permission for fringe groups to si- suddenly come up from underground, come up mm. from the basement, and start screaming as if their, you know, their theory or their philosophies was the way we should all be run. And that's where it started, Scott. And what it's done is that it's snowballed since then. So now we have some of these groups that are screaming half cock stuff that really, you know, it just it just boggles my mind. You've got candidates around the world, such as now in uh, in Italy, you know, two years ago, and uh, she was an extremist and crazy. Two years later, oh, maybe, maybe I'll vote for her. So, you know, there's no telling what can sway public opinion because we are so used to this churn, this hamster wheel of news that basically mm. repeats the same thing and the same charges over and over and over again, that we don't bother to read the rest. We don't bother, most of us don't bother to do our homework to say, okay, no, that's crazy. I don't believe it. Um, Let's move on. And it seems, you know, the more extreme a leader will become, again, doesn't matter left or right, the opposition does the exact opposite because that's how they combat, I guess. That's how they oppose. Um, so it just seems to get worse and worse and worse. And, and then we, uh, we don't agree to disagree anymore. You're either on the right team or the wrong team. You know, and and it's funny what you said when you opened up the show and you talked about, is there no place for centrist politics anymore? And and I think that, you know, you and I have both lived our lives where everybody was just a little bit to the right of center and maybe just a little bit to the left of center. Mm-hmm. And and we were kind of okay with that. You know, we had different leaders who maybe had different I- ideologies, but nobody ever dabbled into the extremes. And I think that that's something that all Canadians have to be very, very careful of. You know, we're always, you know, listen, Political, political parties are always going to be at each other. There's there's no two ways about that. But I think that we have to, as voters, I think that we have to sort of take a step back and not believe everything we see firsthand and actually look at uh, look at issues in a more holistic way. Are you surprised we're here? Because most Canadians don't belong to a public, uh, a political party. Um, many will will swing both ways and, and vote for the candidate, depending upon, you know, their area and, and what their beliefs are. So how does this become so embedded if it's the fringe that's doing it? How do we all get sucked into it? Complacency is one. You know, everybody screams about Doug Ford and stealing the, the green belt. 
And, you know, when he was at the, uh, what was it, the tractor pull the other day? And that's mm -hmm. basically right in his base. I mean, the people that were there, the people who attended were probably all at one point Ford voters. But he has alienated uh, a good portion of them. So, but you can't complain, Scott. You can't complain if you didn't get out there and vote. The turnout for the last provincial election was abysmal. So we can all sit back and stamp our feet and gnash our teeth and wring our hands and say, this is terrible. Well, if it was that bad and you cared that much, then you should have left work a little bit earlier and then got, you know, gotten to vote. So some people also just throw up their hands and think, you know what? Gosh, you know, government is just there, not necessarily for the greater good, but just to make sure they all have jobs every four or five years. Hmm. So I think there is some of, of uh, a jadedness that uh, people undergo. But, you know, I think you just got to hope for that each generation becomes more aware, more politically involved and has, you know, more reason to get out there and vote and voice their opinion on who they want to run their municipality, their 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 province or their country. Uh, and it appears, it appears that, you know, if you are a centrist politician, that you're gone. You don't, th those people just aren't getting elected or, you know, certainly in the last couple of elections anyway. And that's sort of given way to what we have now. So again, it's us in the end who pick them. So it, it seems odd that we're looking to be divisive as opposed to unite. You know, it's, um, it's really unfortunate. I think that, you know, your your notion about, you know, we only hire, we only, I mean, vote in extreme pol politicians. I think that's really a riding by riding thing. And I don't think that represents um, the majority of ridings in this province. I mean, I'm, I'm just kind of like thinking on my own, you know, where divisive politics really sort of like um, comes into play. And I honestly don't think that that's the majority. I think that what uh, politicians and political parties capitalize on is discontent. Hmm. And, you know, any party that's been an incumbent for a number of years will obviously have to suffer that, suffer that and overcome that, especially as, you know, they're looking for, you know, a second or third term, um, you know, back into power. So it, it's not necessarily, I think, divisive politics, Scott. I think it's um, more a rise of discontent and that any change is better than the status quo. Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert, solving the world's problems right here in about seven or eight minutes. Alyssa, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. I think there'll be a part two to come, Scott. But yes, oh, thank you for having me on. <laughs> yes, I'm sure there will be. And many after that. Thank you. All right. We've talked about this before, but this year marking the 30th anniversary of Junk House's release of Strays, released on a limited edition vinyl LP and a tour. Let's bring in Tom Wilson, Mohawk author, visual artist, Lee Harvey Osmond, Blackie and the Rodeo Kings, Junk House, and focus of the documentary film, Beautiful Scars. Tom is here now. Tom, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well i'm doing good scott i'm out walking my dog i'm just going down to my mom's house down by the h triple a grounds and uh see what's going on there you know I am incredibly excited about this, as uh, you can probably imagine, and there are many of fans are. How, tell us how this all came about. Obviously, we've got the release of Strays on vinyl and such, but what's going on? Well, the uh, you know people are interested in seeing the band, and I mean we're always happy to hear that. I mean we've been uh, we've been out doing like maybe one, two, three shows a year for the last. Uh, for the last about six or ten years, you know, and we just do festivals. But now we're gonna we're gonna go do a couple, you know, larger club dates. So we're actually coming to Hamilton. We're coming to the Bridge Works, and 
it's a bit of a celebration because, you know, that first record in particular, we kind of, you know, had a bunch of hits all over the world with that, but we also took all of Hamilton with us with that record, you know. That was a record that uh, we sang about Hamilton. We sang about the neighborhoods we were living in, the places we grew up in, some of the characters that we knew. And uh, so, you know, that, that first record by Junkhouse Strays, that was a very Hamilton-centric theme. I remember very vividly uh, interviewing on the radio, you on the radio when this came out, and what really stood out to me was exactly what you just said, that you were, uh, you know, singing about sitting under the hydro wires and this and that and whatever. And I asked you, like, because not a lot of Canadians were doing that at that point. Um, you know, they were mimicking other names for other places and such. The hip was doing it. You guys were doing it, obviously. And I remember you asking you that, and you said, well, that's all I know about. And it doesn't get much more honest than that, Tom. No, we have to be. Uh, we have to. We have to try to be our true selves. If if we live long enough, and if we're smart enough, we'll actually get on a path where we try to live uh, to be our true selves and to present ourselves with our heart first. That's that's the game. But Junkhouse was doing that back in 1993. I mean, these. I was a Hamilton guy. These are the things mm-hmm. I knew. Praying for the rain. Yeah, well, that's written. That's written about driving down Highway Six, going down to Port Dover, <laughs> going down to Long Point. You know that that's that's what that's about. You know, it's about our neighborhoods, our communities, and the people who live there. So, the fact that the uh, you know you noticed that it was Hamilton centric and the themes were from Hamilton, but it wasn't until we got to be interviewed all the way over in Germany by a Rolling Stone magazine over there that they've started asking, you know, they started asking questions about, tell me, what is the Niagara Escarpment? What is the wow. Skyway Bridge? And what is B? You know, mm-hmm. um, it's funny because maybe you were the only guy that maybe asked those kind of questions back then, but nobody really picked up on Hamilton, you know, it was just, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, over their heads or they weren't listening or whatever, but it took, uh, it took having to go an ocean away from our hometown for people to recognize and ask the questions about, you know, those those pieces of our hometown. What stands out about this period for you? Because, I mean, you've done so much. I mean, this is just a chapter in your life when you think about it. But what stands out about those three albums in that period in your life? Well, first of all, that period, you know, we went from playing the gown and gavel in Hess Village and, uh, you know, traveling up and down the 401, you know, going from Detroit to Montreal, playing playing clubs, playing pubs, playing universities. And then all of a sudden, you know, this record came out and the songs were on the radio, you know, when 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 rock and roll radio really meant something, we were we were you know, running all over the top of the charts in Canada and in Europe and Australia and Japan. And all of a sudden we were a bunch of knuckleheads from Hamilton that were getting on, you know, private jets and flying around and going to Scotland. I'd, be, I'd come home and, and I'd get a call saying, Tuesday, you got to fly to Scotland. You're going to go play a castle with a band called Oasis and a guy named Jeff Buckley. <laughs> I mean, they were heady times, you know what I mean, Scott, for, for a guy from the East Mountain. Man, uh, so anything else to come out of this? Is there going to be a documentary on this band? Someone's got to record all this. Is any oh, of that in no. order here, Tom? Come on. No, we're, just, we're going to go play some songs. We're, we're looking forward to it. Um, the, the fact is that we're, we're starting off with these four shows, 
to celebrate the record. And uh, there's four markets. There's London and Waterloo, Hamilton and Toronto. And after that, you know, there's offers coming in from other other places, and we'll probably go there. But, you know, we're going to take our time. Hey, Scott, we're old men now. we got to move a little slower <laughs> than we did in 93. Tom Wilson with us, Mohawk author, visual artist, musician, Lee Harvey Osmond, Blackie and the Rodeo, Rodeo Kings, and Junk House celebrating the 30th year uh, since Strays were released, and there's a December show in the Hammer. Tom, very exciting. I'm stoked to see this, and good luck uh, getting ready for all this. Oh, come on now, Scott. I hope to see you there. For sure. I'll be in the front row. If you need anybody to do a Q&A, I'll help with that, too. Whatever you need, man, I'm in. <laughs> All right. December 1st at the Bridgeworks. December 1st at the Bridgeworks. That's it. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We saw uh, the situation in the United States with the UAW and auto workers. Obviously, uh, because so much product goes back and forth across the border, if uh, one is uh, on strike, other ones are affected. Unifor and Ford have reached a tentative deal. Uh, what does that mean for the U.S. side? How closely are they linked? Sean O'Brady with us, assistant professor, human res- uh, human resources and management, DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University, and here now. Sean, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, thank you for uh, t- bringing me on. So, Sean, uh, difference between negotiations in Canada and the U.S., uh, a tentative deal here in Canada, but not necessarily in the U.S.? Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, definitely not necessarily in the U.S. Um, in Canada, they have a tentative deal. They're not there in the U.S., and the diff- major difference in negotiations across the two, well, there are many of them, but a major difference is the fact that in Canada, Unifor decided to target its energies in bargaining with a single company, this being Ford, and was going to initiate a nationwide strike against the company at all its plants should Ford uh, and the union not come to an agreement. In the United States, the tactic has been different and actually historically unique for the United Auto Workers. Um, typically they engage in pattern bargaining, like in Canada, where you negotiate with one company first and then pressure the other companies to adopt, uh, the same, uh, uh, conditions. But in the United States, they decide to bargain with all three companies, these being Ford, um, uh, Ford GM and Stellantis and, uh, started initiating strikes, but not at all their plants. So the idea is they would start off with one plant at each company and then as, pressure to continue to add pressure, they would expand the strike over more and more plants as time goes on to put pressure on all the companies to agree on conditions and a common floor across all of them. Uh, Sean, why the two different approaches here? Does it have something to do with size or uh, just different ways of doing things? Which one is the most effective, efficient? Uh, you know, it's really tough to say. I think it it's just a question of the strategies of the um, uh, of the union leadership on each side. Uh, and I think it could be uh, questions of mobilization in the sense that it, it, so I, I'm not 100 percent sure one reason could be maybe uh, the UAW thought it might be easier to mobilize uh, to pick um, to mobilize across the section of plants as opposed to having their energies across all the plants at the same time and that they this would be easier, more sustainable over time. And it also means they could prolong the pressure and their their. Um, strike funds would be able to last a lot longer if they didn't have to waste them all on one nationwide strike. Whereas if they were to just have a few plants going and slowly escalate, they can make the strikes last longer and you know get more press and add pressure for longer. And hopefully the employer would tire. And, and, and the 
Uh, in Canada, they picked an entirely different approach, uh, which is the more traditional approach. And they probably thought, we think this can work. It's worked in past years. And let's just continue with this strategy. Uh, so uh, that's one reason I would suspect it might have to do with strike funds. And it might have to do with uh, recognizing the climate on the ground floor of the uh, of the workers. So that being said, a tentative deal between Ford and Unifor, what does that say for the others in Canada? And is that uh, do, do people in the U.S. view that as well? They got a deal. What happened there? Uh, you know, so that's, yeah, that's two questions. What does it mean for the other Canadian companies, meaning when they go to bargain, Unifor will next turn to bargain with GM and Stellantis. And then the other question is, what does it mean for these companies in the U.S. when the United Auto Workers negotiate with them? Uh, in Canada, you know, what's likely to happen, and this is what how it works, is it's pattern bargaining. So they'll have one, they'll bargain with one company. And once they secure an agreement, uh, that will set a framework yeah. for bargaining with the other companies. And so I expect GM and Stellantis, the agreements to be very, very similar. It, it almost always is. And I don't see why this would be any different this year. Um, the implications for the U.S., uh, that will be depending on what the agreement says, right? I didn't look at what the agreement uh, the agreement was. I remember at one point there was you know, a discussion of 20% raises over the course of, I think, four years. I don't know what they've agreed to at the end. Uh, and so the implications are, um, one, if the agreement's very generous, this might bolster the United Auto Workers to you know, push their workers to go harder and harder for a higher raise. Uh, on the other hand, if it's maybe more moderate, um, and I'm not saying this is not reasonable, right? But if it's if it's uh, let's say if it's not as high as what they're going for, this might take a little bit of wind out of their sails in the sense that they won't they'll have to justify having a, a wage rate um, pushing for a wage rate that's much much higher than the Canadians got. Uh, but of course, you know uh, there are a lot of justifications that you can make. We have universal health care, right? Uh, we have a lot of differences. Mm. We have different tax climate, different cost mm. of living. Uh, it's different living in Windsor than a lot of these American cities. So there is a lot of arguments uh, they could make uh, still to push for a higher wage. In the US. Sean, it seems that with these, and maybe it's just because it's not political, so we don't hear as much about it, it, it seems that these negotiations are a lot more civil than when we get, say, the public service, a public service strike or a teacher strike or something of that nature. This seems to get, you know, cut, the ch- cut to the chase and get her done. Is that just an outsider looking in? There's as much going on behind the scenes, obviously. Um, but why does the why do these discussions seem to be a bit more civil? So there's a few reasons for this. Uh, one is the fact that uh, a major difference between private sector and public sector strikes is the fact that you know if there's a big if if uh, Unifor had struck against Ford, it would hurt financially. It would hurt a lot, and you don't necessarily have to go through an all-out you know media relations blast to hurt the reputation initially, at least. Uh, because that might be enough to to make them uh, uh, to to get the message out. We want a good raise. Uh, whereas in the public sector, you know, if there's a strike, the government saves money. It's not about the money at the end of the day. Uh, it's really about reputation. And so you have to really have a lot of hoorah rah and try to damage the government's reputation. And that's it's the political costs that really get you a better deal when you're in public sector bargaining. Whereas when you're in private sector bargaining, it's really the financials that matter. And you don't have to go that route. Another argue, another reason would be, you know, they accept unions and the leadership. There's some continuity and leadership in the private sector among the big three. They accept pattern bargaining. This is the way as it's always been. Uh, but in in the public sphere, when it comes to teacher strikes, there are different governments. You know, if this had been a liberal or an NDP government, they there might be a different relationship. There'd be different questions of trust. 
Uh, the Ford government has a history of bargaining hard with unions, maybe uh, doing uh, introducing legislation right back to work legislation. Um, the last debate about the notwithstanding clause. So, you know, the government is not seen necessarily as a friend of the union. And so, and so the union has to take a different tactic than you would uh, if you were in the private sector with, with the big three. Sean O'Brady with us, Assistant Professor of Human Resources and Management Group School of Business, McMaster University, talking about auto workers and their tentative deal in Canada with Unifor and Ford. Sean, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks to you. A quick break here. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. We certainly know the situation uh, that has come up with India. Uh, the Prime Minister uh, talking on Monday in the House of Commons that there was evidence that allegedly India had something to do with the assassination of a Sikh separatist in British Columbia uh, back in June. Uh, that's obviously uh, the source of tension between the two Prime Ministers at the G20 and such. India has uh, obviously come out and and said that this is uh, completely uh, outrageous uh, at the time, or, or hopefully in the future, trying to get some sort of trade going with India as an alternative to China. And I'm not sure where that is right now. Let's bring in Will Stewart, Senior Vice President, National Lead, Public Affairs and Advocacy, and here now. Will, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Happy to be here. Thanks for, so much for having me. So, Will, your thoughts on when you heard this story break? Uh, many are questioning how the Prime Minister did it, why he did it now. We understand there was a Globe and Mail story that was ready to break, so it was going to hit the headlines anyway. Your thoughts on on the fallout of this? Yeah, look, it was certainly a sensational few minutes in the uh, House of Commons yesterday. We got the notice that he was going to give a special statement of national security importance uh, and then stood and revealed, honestly, a, a quite shocking allegation against another democracy, the world's largest democracy, frankly, in uh, in India. And, and as you say, there's been a ton of fallout uh, from this. There's been diplomats expelled. We're in the early stages of a diplomatic incident with the country of, of India. Lots of people now starting to ask questions. What type of evidence does the prime minister have? What type of evidence does CSIS have to make these allegations? And I think the, you know Canadians are looking to, to see that and hear it and make sure that this is actually true uh, at the end of the day. Um, is, do you think this was something done very quickly, something did in haste? Do you think the prime minister was prepared for this? Yeah, it, it does feel like it was done in haste. I think you're right. I've heard the same thing about the Globe and Mail with uh, with um, a few reporters ready to, to to write an article. But I think that's that's exactly it. I mean, we're, we kind of were wondering why yet again the prime minister has gone to India and and had a, a diplomatic situation, a less than positive trip. Of course, that happened a number of years ago. And with this uh, revelation uh, this week, that certainly brings it more into context as to why that trip to India went so poorly in the G20. Why Minister Ng, Mary Ng, has canceled the trade mission to India as well. And it did feel like it happened quickly to get ahead of the story that the Globe and Mail was going to, to release. And of course, the reason the Liberals really needed to be ahead of this story is because of the, the lack of action, or at least perceived mm. lack of action, on Chinese interference as it pertains to some of our parliamentarians over the last number of months, up to a year ago. 
So what is the fallout here in Canada? Obviously, the trade deal has been uh, has been canceled or the trade mission of such. What does this mean for Indians living here in Canada? I mean, we saw the uh, uh, India announce a travel advisory for those traveling here. Well, there's already thousands living here. Does this does this divide the country? How does this affect Canada? Yeah, look, I, I don't think it divides the country. I paid particular attention yesterday to the leader of the NDP, Jagmeet Singh, and his commentary. Of course, very pointed, being not only a a uh, West Coast riding, a Burnaby area riding, but also uh, a Sikh himself. And you know, listening to him speak about how growing up he was told that these challenges about expressing your views in India could result in ch- in 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 death or or, or um, or violence directed against you. And how he said, you know, it was the hope of many when they came to Canada that this type of incident and this type of these type of accusations uh, would be behind them. So I found that a particularly poignant uh, speech. So of course, uh, you know, he articulated how Sikhs in this country must feel. Uh, we know we have a ton of international students from all over the world, but a lot of them from India uh, as well. So I do think that this is going to have more ramifications in the months to come. I do think we've only seen 5% uh, of this. We're going to hear a lot more about it. It's going to be a lot rockier. There's going to be allegations uh, flying in all directions here. So truth, openness, and transparency are really going to be the things that gets Canada through this without that divided nation that you're referencing on. Uh, obviously, allies slow to react to this, want to see more proof, uh, obviously have trade deals of their own that they're working on, a different reaction than with the communist China, uh, the Chinese Communist Party when there was uh, alleged interference there. So how does this move forward? Like, what what's the next step here? Well, I mean, it's quite clear that the, the liberals and the NDP have wanted for a long time to include other countries in their discussion and their special conference on, or the special committee, rather, on electoral interference. You know, the Conservatives keep talking about China, particularly as it's directed against their member of parliament from from Halton Hills. Michael Chong has been down to the U.S. Congress to testify on the Chinese interference directed at his family. Um, So I think, you know, we've got a difficult uh, situation that we're going to have to get through uh, with this. But it's quite clear now that the NDP and the Liberals will clearly want to include India in the investigation into uh, uh, foreign interference in in our country. You know, Jagmeet Singh, again, will bring a passionate voice to that, particularly when it comes to the Sikh minority in in India. But really, I think there are two separate issues here, right? One is the interior discussions about separatist movement that have killed a Canadian. And that's a very serious allegation that deserves its own investigation. Uh, Mm. On the other side, we've got a Chinese interference in our electoral process, which seemingly has gone on for decades. And it's a much different allegation. And I think it deserves uh, examination on its own as well. So we'll see what happens. But one thing, sure, uh, in in politics in Canada, you know, not 100 percent of the people are going to be happy as we get further into this debate. Will Stewart, Senior Vice President, National Lead, Public Affairs and Advocacy, the evolving relationship between Canada and India. Will, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Talk soon. Talking about the situation Canada and India now finds itself in. A while ago, we were uh, looking for another trading partner to uh, diversify beyond China. And obviously, with the announcement the other day that uh, the Prime Minister made in the House of Commons, uh, tying the Indian government to, uh, allegedly, to the assassination of a Sikh separatist in British Columbia earlier this year, uh, has obviously um, uh, blown up relations, to say the least. Uh, India has denied all of this.
uh, and, and his, uh, offer to travel advisory to those that are traveling here, which, uh, is odd. What about the thousands that already live here? Anyway, I digress. Where does this, uh, go moving forward? Let's bring in Rohin, uh, Rohindan Medora, distinguished fellow at the Center for International Governance and Innovations. Rohindan, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're well. Good to be with you, Scott. I am. Your thoughts, Rohindan, when you see how this has all come about? We understand the Prime Minister uh, getting ahead of this story because uh, it was in the going to be in the Globe and Mail anyway. Um, was it handled the right way? Is there anything we could have done differently here? You know, the, there's still a lot we don't know and never will, which is the nature of things that are based on intelligence. And so uh, whatever people like you and I think may may not be near the truth. But I'd say for the prime minister to stand up in parliament and make a statement as direct and public as this, one has to assume that the intelligence was there. Um, How much of this is uh, solid intelligence? How much of it can be shared? We don't know. But I think once they knew, they had to do what they did. And uh, the Indians had to react the way they have. This is standard operating procedure in these kinds of episodes. Uh, that being said, it seems that India and Canada are at odds on this. Will India be a part of this investigation? Will there be cooperation here? Uh, the two countries do exchange, um, do have a security arrangement since about 2018 uh, to exchange information. Uh, in this kind of climate, it is unlikely that we will know everything that the Indians know. And I wouldn't be surprised if the Indians don't have all the intelligence on which the PM based his uh, statement. So, you know, relations are frosty. We have other alliances, and I wouldn't be surprised if the intelligence we're using is based on our Five Eyes partners or on some other source. Uh, But the cooperative relationship between India and Canada, on this one in particular, is unlikely to be very smooth. Uh, do you, will India try to defend itself against these uh, allegations in any way? It will, it must, and it already has. Uh, it's been making quite categoric statements that it knows nothing about this. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they, you know, uh, up the up the stakes by saying, "Show us what you have," which of course Canada cannot do because it would compromise its own intelligence. Uh, and there will be this kinds of gamesmanship that each side has to play, uh, both for strategic reasons and uh, for their own publics. What about the allies uh, now and, and Five Eyes, what have you? Uh, they're not quick to uh, to stand beside the prime minister at this point. Many looking for some of that evidence. Where do you think that's going to go? So this is the interesting bit, Scott. I, I'd say there's two ways to look at it. Um, one way is to suggest that the intelligence that the Canadians have is flimsy, the Allies know it, and therefore are standing down. Uh, I don't buy that because, I, as I said previously, I don't think the PM would have gone as public as he did uh, if the intelligence wasn't solid. And so the second option, uh, I think, is the more likely one, which is that realpolitik is at play. Uh, currently, uh, the West sees a rising China as a threat, both internationally and domestically. India was being played up, as you pointed out in your intro, as an alternative way to diversify away from China and still maintain links with a rising Southern power. Um, And so 
the US, the UK, the, the European Union, Australia, Japan have all been courting India. Prime Minister Modi uh, has received rapturous welcomes in Washington and Paris this summer. You add all of that up, this incident kind of vexes their courting of India. They're unlikely to want to stop that. I mean, the UK is at the last stages of signing a trade deal with India. They're unlikely to want to sort of give all of that up to stand besides Canada on this one episode. And that's why I think we're seeing the kind of muted response from our allies. Only got a few seconds left here, Rohinton. Um, uh, what about the reaction back here, even within the Indian community or the Sikh community? Uh, how, how do they respond to this? Um, I, I'm, I'm not privy to, to, to that whole, uh, you know, the, the Indian community in Canada is, uh, is diverse. Uh, the majority of it uh, might well be, according to the statistics, Sikh. And within that, there are ranges of few. Uh, I, I do understand that as Canadians, we all must applaud our government for having stood up for the sanctity of uh, security of Canadian citizens on Canadian soil. There's probably more to the story that we don't know. But at this point, uh, I suspect the government did what it had to, knowing what it knew. Rohinton Maduro with us, Distinguished Fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation. Rohinton, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. Same to you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Franco Terrazano, our friend at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, his latest acts the tax on farm and food. The House of Commons overwhelmingly passed a bill to make food cheaper and to help farmers. In fact, the House passed the bill twice. But after two years, the bill still isn't law, and that delay has cost families and farmers almost $100 million. What's stalling the democratic will of our elected representatives? And to talk more about all of this, Franco Terrazano is with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and here now. Franco, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me on today. So this is kind of odd, Franco, that you're talking about this when just the other day, all the CEOs of the grocery companies were all uh, summoned and shamed in Ottawa the other day about getting them to do something about uh, the high cost of groceries and such. What is this that you're talking about that's been there for a while, but something that we obviously haven't got to? Well, what's going on with the grocery stores in Ottawa, that's just political theater, but worse, political theater that could actually impact Canadians in a bad way uh, if the Trudeau government does go forward with a grocery tax like it has mused, like it has threatened. But the one thing that the government could do to immediately make groceries more affordable is to pass Bill C-234. It's a carbon tax exemption that would remove the carbon tax uh, from the natural gas and the propane that farmers use to dry their grain and to keep their barns warm during those cold winter months. And of course, this carbon tax is costing Canadian farmers a ton of money. Many of their competitors, including farmers to the south of them in the United States, don't have a carbon tax. And it's that carbon tax that's driving up the cost of farmers to produce food, which is making it a lot more expensive for Canadian families to actually buy the food in the store. Uh, It seems that whenever the government gets pinned into a corner with this sort of stuff, it repeats stuff. Why wouldn't they reintroduce this? And it would be now a great time to, to bring this forward, would it not? Well, now it's time for the Senate to wake up from its slumber and to pass this bill through the Senate. Because, look, uh, the House of Commons has access. So the House, let me just take a step back. The House of Commons, 
where our members of parliament are debating and pass legislation. Our members of parliament have actually passed this carbon tax exemption twice. It was originally brought forward in September 2020. Of course, some of the parties in there um, have delayed, but they've passed it twice. And now it's our senators who are kicking the can down the road. Um, They essentially took a break over summer while so many Canadian families were struggling to afford food. Right when farmers are about to work their 20-hour days during harvest, senators took a summer vacation. So we have no idea why they would have done that. They should have recalled the Senate and actually passed the bill to make sure that we remove the carbon tax off of these farm fuels. So where is this now, Franco? Is this a priority for them? I mean, obviously, affordability and groceries have been a key issue, um, and I'm sure they're aware of that. Well, it's a priority for families, that's for sure, right? But I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's a priority for senators. Maybe with their $170,000 a year salary, taxpayer-funded salary, they're not too worried about the price of milk or hamburger meat or chicken. Of course, 6 in 10 Canadians now say that they're worried their paychecks uh, might not feed their families. But right now, this bill is is past the House of Commons. It's in the Senate. It's in second reading, uh, or just past second reading in June. And it's been stalled in the Agriculture Committee in the Senate. And it's been there since June. And, you know, yes, they had summer vacation. But you even had the Fisheries fisheries Committee come back during summer vacation to study and examine how seals are impacting Canadian fishers. So if the Fisheries Committee could have come back during summer vacation and got some work done, I don't understand why senators in the Agriculture Committee couldn't have come to work and provided Canadian families with some relief at the grocery store. Uh, again, Franco, considering what the discussions have been about a late, uh, of late, uh, it's surprised that this isn't more of a priority. What about pressure from government to to expedite this? Is that possible? Well, unfortunately, uh, the most liberals haven't voted in favor for, of this. Most liberals voted against this. In fact, you had the conservatives, you had the bloc, you had the NDP, uh, you had independents, and you had three liberal members of parliament who voted in favor of this. But the vast majority of Liberal members of Parliament didn't vote in favor. They opposed this. So unfortunately, the government isn't actually pressuring the Senate to move faster on this. Um, The exact opposite is happening, where now you have Mr. Trudeau threatening a grocery tax. They're going to sell this like they're going to go after so-called greedy grocers. But at the end of the day, if the Trudeau government does bring in a grocery tax, it will, of course, be all of us consumers paying higher prices at the till. This seems to be like it's low-hanging fruit, though, Franco. I mean, this is something that the the public would jump on, and he'd get a he'd get a win with if he saw if he talked about this now. The most low-hanging fruit, the most low-hanging fruit, right? Mm. Like it should be a no-brainer to just remove the carbon tax from these farm fuels like natural gas and propane, especially when it's like harvest season. It is the most low-hanging fruit, and I'm not sure why Mr. Trudeau hasn't been pressuring the Senate to do this. Uh, I mean, look, I am not in the room with Mr. Trudeau and his advisor, advisors, but it, it must be some type of ideological commitment. But that problem there is that it's hurting Canadians by making essentially everything more expensive, including food. All right. Franco Terrazano with us, federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. House of Commons has passed a bill twice to make food cheaper and help farmers, but it is still not law and costing families almost $100 million stuck in the Senate. Franco, thanks for the time. Be well.
Hey, I appreciate you for having me on today. Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky at the U.N. today and will be coming to Canada soon. Uh, and at the U.N. today, he said Russia is not to be trusted and that membership should be expanded. To talk more about this, Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor, Political Science, Carleton University, and here now. Elliot, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, thank you. Same to you, Scott. So obviously the president of, of Ukraine at the U.N. today and eventually coming to Canada doing the tour. Is this the Ukraine resistance weakening? Is, is this a sign here that he's coming and asking for fortification? Quite clearly, there is concern that Mr. Putin will win his gamble, that uh, Russia can absorb more pain than the West and the democracies can maintain their own unity. And it's a gamble that uh, there are signs he might be winning. There's certainly opposition in the right wing of the Republican Party of the U.S. to uh, maintaining any level of support for Ukraine. And if the Republicans come to power, which is a possibility next year, then Ukraine's support would probably drop significantly. But all states are, that are supporting um, Ukraine are faced with the possibility that this very long, drawn-out counteroffensive is not going to be a swift, decisive breakthrough, and therefore there may be a weakening, and therefore, yes, this is a, a tour to shore up the support, but also in Canada's case, to say thank you. Uh, didn't we see this coming? I mean, this was Russia's strategy all along, just keep dragging it out, wearing them down, and, and, and just continuing on. I mean, isn't this what their strategy was all along? Well, of course, their strategy was to, to win a, a short, right. sharp war, uh, the one-week war, where they were going to come in, decapitate the leadership, have a phony referendum, incorporate Ukraine into Russia, and eliminate Ukraine as a state. That is their goal. That didn't work out, of course. And after that, they decided, yes, they'd better settle in and uh, find a, fight a grinding war. They, again, mobilized a lot of troops, thinking that would work. That didn't work. So... This is uh, not a stalemate. The Ukrainian counteroffensive is making gains. But the main thing to be sure of is that the counteroffensive itself is not the determinant of Western or, or democratic support, that in fact the support is for Ukraine. That's why Canada joined and the others in the G7 to make a declaration specifically to the effect Ukraine would have long-term security guarantees even though it is far short of actually joining NATO. What is going to push this over the top, Elliot, for Ukraine? Is, is it either um, a, a, an all-out victory or a settlement? What, what's going to push this to a conclusion? Victory for Ukraine. <laughs> this, that's the yeah. only way that it can be concluded success, successfully as far as Ukraine is concerned. Remember that uh, 2014 is when the dismemberment of the state, the Disavowal of the legitimacy of the existence of Ukraine was already established, and Russia now wants to complete that job. The deoccupation of Ukraine is the goal. Whether they can achieve it or not really, in large part, depends on the quality and the quantity of resources that can be brought to bear you know, by people such as states such as Canada, most importantly, of course, the U.S. and other allies. It seems this is not, this is not a shopping trip for him, I think, to Canada as much as it is, precisely as you put it, to shore up the ongoing support for Ukraine. As this goes on, it seems to get more and more complicated, or even world issues make it more complicated. We, you know, we have what we have with Canada and India today. Is victory possible without triggering a world war? 
Well, <laughs> this has been the uh, the shaping parameter of the war all along is that Joe Biden said at the very outset that we will not directly confront Russia because Russia is a nuclear bearing superpower and we will not push the war in Ukraine. We will not push into World War III, which would be the end of civilization, perhaps existence of life on the planet. That has shaped what the West has been willing to do. But increasingly, uh, the U.S. has kept in showing up with more and more and more weapons, quality weapons. And so far, the Ukraine has made effective use of them, but they need more and better and longer term guarantees in order to continue to, to frustrate Russia's plan to eliminate, among other things, a member state of the United Nations uh, and, and to incorporate it uh, into, the, into Russia. So, you know, Ukraine is quite right. The President Zelensky was just at the UN once again, reminding all of the states, including those that are trying to stay neutral, that the UN Charter exists precisely to defend the uh, sovereignty and territorial integrity of all states. And for 70 years or so, that was more or less the case in terms of a global conflict, so that stopping Russia right now is a way to stop that kind of old-fashioned uh, conquest of the, of the stronger against the weaker to return as the norm in international relations. Are the allies doing enough to help Ukraine beat Russia, or is it just about holding their own? Because at the end of the day, you know, Americans are complaining this is dragging out, it's a blank check, it's whatever. So why is there not to put a plan in place, okay, we're going to load up, we're going to do this, and boom? Because it seems all we're really doing at this point is matching what Russia is doing. Yes, that's in, uh, one of the members of the U.S. Congress said, we'll give Ukraine enough to uh, bleed, but not enough to win. And that indeed is Ukraine's concern, and that's their answer when all the states now are pushing, why aren't you doing more on the counteroffensive? They're saying, well, you come and try to fight for every inch. Uh, the counteroffensive should not be seen as the, as the be-all and end-all of the war. The be-all and end-all of the war is for uh, the forces opposed to uh, this kind of colonial aggression that uh, has been relaunched by Russia. It has to fail or the geopolitics of the world is going to change. Remember, uh, that would if Ukraine does get to absorbed into Russia, Russia then is going to be in the heart of Europe with, with uh, nuclear weapons. So to defend the rules-based order and to defend the kind of states that uh, Canada, <laughs> among others, uh, tries to represent, Ukraine has to prevail. That's the Ukrainian position. And uh, to, to say, as he puts it, nefarious deals Shady deals should be cut. Uh, he's rejecting that. And I think probably he's correct. Uh, Russia has to lose this war. Elliot, I can't let you go without asking you uh, your opinion on where Canada and India now finds itself after uh, the allegations the, the Prime Minister made in the House and India's reaction to them. What are your thoughts? Well, I'm, I'm, a, long, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a professor of Asian studies, and I'm a longtime friend and, of India, and I, I go there, and I have many friends. So. Uh, I'm, I am personally deeply upset about this turn of events. Uh, where the relations are now is they're in the tank, Scott. They're, they're, mm. This is the worst they ever have been. Uh, there's no sign that this can be turned around in the short term. Uh, the, the prime minister has really put himself on the line here, saying we have credible evidence, but it's, it's credible evidence, <laughs> and it's uh, possibly this and maybe that, if, if he does not have the evidence in hand, 
that led to this crisis, then it's going to go very badly for Canada. But if he does have, in effect, the smoking gun, and it can be demonstrated without releasing uh, awkward details about how the information was gathered, then uh, India, indeed, is going to find itself in the hot seat just at the moment when India wants to stand forth as really the fulcrum of world politics. And that's what the G20 was about. And uh, the world actually, the, the non uh, the, the forces that are opposed to it, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, Axis, all of those states also are looking to India to be the democratic, safe, reliable alternative. Hmm. And this is, uh, this is a conundrum now for the world. What do you do when you want to work with India? But India is credibly charged, but not proven to have conducted this kind of behavior and you know, killing a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil. It, it's a very tragic moment and one that, unfortunately, I don't see any way out of this in terms of climbing, climbing back to good relations again in the near future. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, weighing on world issues, uh, weighing in on world issues. Elliot, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Uh, certainly. Thank you. Same to you, Scott. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I enjoyed your article on uh, the um, uh, on the Burton Cummings uh, show in uh, in what's his name Don's backyard. Yes, yes, that was. Uh, I I don't know that the day will ever come that I'll be able to do that, especially because Neil Peart is gone now, so I can't have Rush. Um, but and not even talking about the finances of it. But yes, it's a very cool thing to do. Yeah, very. And you know what? As long as the neighbors are in on it, and then you know what the heck, you invite them. They're all there. Uh, everybody's happy, I guess. Yeah, that's another reason why uh, I'm not sure that uh, they would all love my musical selections. But nonetheless, it's, uh, yeah, it's, um, and also to do it with not just like somebody, but a Canadian icon, that's what kind of makes it yeah. so cool. I mean, you can go and, I don't know, you could hire a band, you could hire any band that plays in a local bar and they would come and play your backyard for 500 bucks probably or a thousand bucks, but to have a Canadian icon playing some of the songs of the soundtrack of Canadians' lives right there, it was, yeah. it, and it's very cool. Very cool. All right. So uh, what stories of the stories of today are standing out for you? Uh, well, I just have spent the last eight hours. Uh, I should get danger pay for this, but I spent the last eight hours at city council and council chambers because there was just a litany of things on the agenda for today. I, I had to bail before they even got through it. They're still going. I had to leave to get here. Yeah. Um, but the two what, big what? ones... The two What's big ones are, yeah. um, first Ontario center update. So we finally have some real details about what's going to be happening there. That's a big one. And also they were talking about this 14.2% possible tax increase. So, you know, big, two big local stories that, uh, they didn't get to the hire the, uh, attempt to hire a new poet. We'll have to get to that one later, but, um, I saw that. <laughs> Can you give us the brief ins and outs of that? Uh, the, the city needs to hire a poet in place. We're having an official poet. And let me tell you, Scott, after I wrote a column about it today, you can find it at thespec.com. Yeah. I have received numerous poems today <laughs> by email <laughs> from people. Um, 
which uh, are so not... you're going to have a bit of a poetry corner tonight. That'd be nice. We, we could read although, some. Although many of them, I would not be allowed to read on the radio. Roses are red, violets are blue. You can take this and jump into I don't know there Is that was sort a, of thing. Well, okay, here's one I got. I'm only going to read the first two lines of this one. Someone sent me. We are so poor. We eat cabbage soup. We go to Shadok to look at our poop. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that was kind of in line with what I was getting today. Wow. Well, you know, and you know, here's, you, you were talking about the 14%, we were talking about the 14% uh, tax increase or the suggestion of maybe, you know, uh, you're going to get a 33% tax increase. So then when you come in at 15, you're thinking, oh, are we ever lucky? You think the same thing's happening here? Uh, 14, uh, we'll get six. Well, we should be happy with I that. I don't think it'll be six. I suspect that it'll they'll try and get it just under 10, so it'll be in single digits. But there's gonna, that, that probably, by the sounds of it, is going to come with a trade-off because almost certainly they're going to have to dip into reserves. And that is, I suppose, fine if you do it once. But yeah. do you become addicted to dipping into reserves because you can do your projects and it doesn't really sting right now? That would be my concern is, can you have the discipline if you are counsel, can you have the discipline to do this one time because you've kind of already committed to a whole bunch of stuff and then not do it next year? That's the hard part. This reminds me of development fees and development costs yes. and, and you know, how they're passed on to the builder to help the city. And then it was supposed to be this, that, and the other. And then now it's become uh, dependent on. So any sort of movement to get rid of them or lower them, uh, we, know, uh, we cannot, there's no way we can do that. We don't have the money. You, you just become to rely on it. Do you, do, you must have watched the movie uh, Christmas, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation over the years, no. uh-huh. where Chevy Chase, uh, Clark Griswold is really mad because he's not getting his bonus. And he tells his boss, we rely on this bonus as part of our salary. And it's like, yeah, that's you, 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 this is kind of the same idea is a bonus is supposed to be something that is extra that you can, you don't put it necessarily into the budget, but it's really great and helpful if it comes along because it eases the way. But again, if, if the plan becomes, or not even the plan, if the, if the fallback becomes, well, we've always got the reserves that then becomes a dangerous place to get into as a habit. It's like relying on an inheritance. Yes, yes. Or or, or any windfall that comes along. But what happens after you've done this a couple times and then that reserve is needed? You know what happens then? What happens is then the taxpayers get extra walloped because now you have to pay the taxes and you have to pay and fill those reserves. Anyway. It's going to be complicated. All right. The uh, conversation continues after six o'clock and the Scott Radley show. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a good one. Thanks, Scott. See you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer to have the last word. Sandra writes on the India-Canada conflict, even worse than their gaslighting on this matter is that they have brought their old country politics to Canada in a very visible and violent way. Not acceptable in my opinion, says Sandra. Keep right, except to pass. 